Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Greetings and welcome to the Southern New Hampshire University Agents of Change live studio. My name is Dr. Hector R. Garcia, and I will be your host for tonight's live show. The Southern New Hampshire University Social Sciences Department provides this podcast for educational purposes only, and reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Southern New Hampshire University. The views expressed by podcast podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Southern New Hampshire University employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of Southern New Hampshire University or any of its officials. Tonight's live presentation will feature discussions and information with a panel of experts who will examine the issue of mass shootings in the United States with particular attention to school shootings and massacres. Dr. Jeff Sarnick, Associate Dean with the School of Criminal Justice, will serve as our panel moderator for this special episode of Agents of Change. Speaking of the panel, tonight the panel features retired police chief Ian A. Moffitt of the Miami-Dade Schools Police Department in Miami, Florida, officers Justin Wheeler and Caitlin Murphy from the Manchester, New Hampshire Police Department, who both are serving there as school resource officers, and Seth Matthews, Associate Dean, Human Services Education at Southern New Hampshire University. And our special guest, a close friend of mine, Mr. Max Schachter is with us here tonight. At this point, let me introduce Max, who will deliver our opening speech for us. Max is a national school safety advocate. His youngest son, Alex, was one of the 17 innocent victims murdered in the Parkland school shootings. He is currently executive director of Safe Schools for Alex, a nonprofit organization he formed after the tragedy. Safe Schools for Alex provides the most current school safety best practices and resources to students, parents, school districts, and law enforcement so that all children can learn in a safe environment. Since the heartbreaking day that changed Max's life forever, he has been advocating for policy change at the highest levels of the United States government. He has worked alongside members of Congress, leaders of all federal agencies, and even the President of the United States to make schools safer. In June of 2019, Max's vision became a reality when President Trump created the Federal School Safety Clearinghouse inside the Department of Homeland Security, a longtime project that Max had worked on. 
Max has also worked to improve the safety and security of Florida students through his membership on the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Commission. In June of 2019, Max was awarded the U.S. Department of Justice Attorney General Citizen Volunteer Service Award by then Attorney General William Barr. Max has been interviewed by numerous local and national media outlets to include CNN, MSNBC, Fox, ABC, NBC, and CBS. He has been invited to give keynote presentations to many local, state, and federal agencies detailing the lessons learned and best practices developed after the Parkland shooting, along with his journey from anguish to advocacy that we will personally hear tonight. Without further ado, let me turn the mic over to Mr. Max Schachter. Max, please join us for your comments. Hector, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. Can you hear me okay? Yes, you're perfect. Continue. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So, um, yeah, thank you for for uh, for having me. It's good to be with uh, your experts on this panel tonight, and I'm here to talk about you know my journey over the last four years and and everything that I've learned. It's been uh, it's been a a very uh, rough ride and uh it's been an interesting ride um and after after alex was murdered in the parkland school shooting i i put my life on hold and uh made it my mission to do everything i could to make sure that this never happened to another family uh, after a lot of these tragedies the governor of the state uh selects a a group of individuals to investigate the tragedy and form a commission. And that's what we did here in Florida. So uh, former governor of Florida, now Senator Rick Scott formed the, the Parkland shooting commissioner that, that Dr. Garcia referenced. And I really wanted to be on that commission. I wanted to find out what happened to Alex and I wanted to hold those individuals accountable. And we've done a lot of good work over the last four years on the commission we were in charge we were tasked with investigating all the interactions between the parkland murderer and the school district between the murderer and law enforcement we investigated the failed law enforcement response and then we were responsible for coming up with recommendations to make schools safer throughout the state of florida and schools are much safer now than where they were prior to the tragedy We've implemented um, numerous school safety measures that no other state is doing, and I think we've done a lot of good work. What we've done in Florida has been a model for the rest of the nation. And then uh, at the federal level, I traveled the country after the tragedy, and what I found was that in many pockets of this country, they were doing great things, but unfortunately, the rest of the country wasn't aware of it. And so there was a real need to create a centralized uh, resource hub of information on school safety. And that's where I came up with the idea uh, to create the Federal School Safety Clearinghouse. And I worked uh, closely with Dr. Garcia and, uh, and Chief Moffitt. We went to Washington, D.C. many, many times to advocate for, uh, for this effort. And uh, I was really, really pleased when when President Trump created this this new federal school safety clearinghouse inside of the Department of Homeland Security. It's it's really a, a model for what the federal government can do if all of the agencies work together. They weren't before. There was a lot of conflicting and 
information coming from all these different agencies, but they're working together now and everything is housed on schoolsafety.gov. So I encourage your listeners to go to schoolsafety.gov because there you'll be able to find all of the the best practices um, on how to make your school safe and information for parents as well. So you've got resources, um, tools, and uh, most importantly, you've got all of the grant dollars that are now centralized on schoolsafety.gov. There are 40 different grant programs that that they have on the site and almost $2 billion of available funds for school districts uh, to increase their safety and security. And this is... Um, this is one of the areas that I spoke about when I testified in front of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee last Wednesday was was codifying this clearinghouse and making it permanent and passing the Luke and Alex School Safety Act. So that that bill was uh, was was uh, sponsored by in the House and in the Senate. And so that's been one of my advocacy uh, roles is is to make sure that that has some permanency. So, and I'm really really uh, pleased. Uh, we got the news yesterday that the Luke and Alex School Safety Act was included in the new uh, bipartisan uh, gun safety legislation that was announced yesterday by uh, Senators Cornyn and Murphy. And if the Senate can pass that out of the Senate, and then it'll go to the House, it'll pass out of the House quickly, and then it'll go to the President for his signature. So. That that's something that I've been fighting for for the last four years, and especially with all this new funding that is going to come into school districts to make them safe. Schools really need guidance on what to do, what not to do. We want to make sure that they're not just spending money on, you know, uh, shiny objects that really aren't going to make their school safe. And they can find all those resources on SchoolSafety.gov. And then the other bill that I've been a strong advocate of is the Eagles Act, uh, named after Alex's high school mascot. And the Eagles Act uh, reauthorizes the U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center. See the Secret Service back in in early 2000, they they coined the term uh, threat assessment, and they use threat assessments to protect the president when individuals are threatening. the president and his family. The Capitol Hill Police uses threat assessments to protect members of Congress and schools and children should have the same protection. So I hope that they pass the Eagles Act that was not included in the the bipartisan gun legislation. I was I was disappointed about that, but I will not not give up uh, fighting uh, for for that because our best chance of preventing the next attack is to is to implement a uh, a threat assessment team that is and uh, a threat assessment process that's really done well. We know what happens when when they're not done well. We have we have a Parkland and we have an Uvalde and we have an Oxford High School shooting. In Parkland, there was a threat assessment done on the Parkland murderer in 2016. Unfortunately, the assistant principal that performed that threat assessment had never done one in his 30 year career didn't know where the paperwork was, didn't know how to fill it out and completely botched it. And I think that if Broward County and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas had the proper training from the Secret Service, they could have done uh, a proper threat assessment. And I think Alex and the 16 others would still be here today. So uh, I, I I work on all these areas. Also, um, a big 
area of my focus is helping communities that have suffered from mass tragedies. Um, it, it's, it's really near and dear to my heart. And uh, there's a lot that we can learn from, from Parkland. It, it frustrated me that, that after all of these tragedies, you know, every community really had to figure it out on their own. And it, it really, we were not really utilizing the, the expertise that, that unfortunately we've developed around this country from all these horrible tragedies around the country. So I, I worked with the, um, the Biden administration to create this uh, mass violence advisory initiative. And so uh, I work on the prevention side, but I also work on the recovery side as well. And through the mass violence advisory initiative, that's a, a joint effort between the department of justice and the international association of chiefs of police, where we offer free services to the next community that is affected uh, by a mass shooting. We have the ability to surge resources into that community. Uh, and, and I'm talking about substantial resources and, and people with tremendous amount of expertise who have been through this before so that the next community doesn't have to figure it out on their own. You know, uh, on our team, we've got individuals like Sheriff John Mina, who was the sheriff during during Pulse, uh, Chief Dan Oates, who was the chief during the Aurora Theater shooting. We've got public information officers from uh, from these horrible tragedies. And, you know, it's just been really hard for me to watch Uvalde and the devolving situation there. And um, we, we could have helped them a lot. I, I hope we're here for them. I hope that they do take us up on our offer to um, to use our services here and, and expertise that that unfortunately we've developed uh, from all these horrible mass shootings. So there's a lot of lessons learned. Um, one thing I do know is that if we if we would just implement the lessons that we learned after Parkland, we could save a lot of lives. So that's why I travel around the country and I speak about what happened in our community, because there is a lot of complacency. People don't think it's going to happen in their community. I know I didn't think it would happen in Parkland. I guarantee they didn't think it would happen in Ovalde or, or Sandy Hook. So I'm here as a resource uh, to not only prevent the next tragedy, but also to be a resource for for um, for the next community that, that is affected. So thank you for having me, uh, Hector. Um, I appreciate all your help over the last uh, four years and, and, and chief and chief Moffat as well. We, we did a lot of good work up in Washington, DC and, and finally seeing some positive uh, movement on that issue. So I'm happy and I'm, I'm hoping that, that this passes out of the Senate and the president is able to sign it. And I'm here to answer any questions that anyone has. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Max. I uh, appreciate that. Um, I'm going to turn over the, pass the baton to, Dr. Jeff Zarnick, who is going to be our moderator today. So Dr. Zarnick, uh, we have one question in the chat box from Monica and uh, feel free to carry on, sir. Okay, can you hear me okay? How's my... Yes, go ahead. All right, very good. Yes, thank you, Monica, Monica, for that question. Max, I'm not sure if you were able to see that or not, but she has a question about uh, the viability of employing uh, military veterans in the schools uh, for security. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we, we're we one of the um, 
one of a select few states that have the Guardian program. And I know uh, uh, Chief Moffat, you know, has a lot of experience with the Guardian program as well. But for uh, the Guardian program, basically, you know, we have SROs in a lot of our schools in Florida. We mandate that we're the only state in the country that mandates that that every school is required to have an armed an armed uh, armed officer on campus, armed security personnel on campus. And uh, for those school districts that do not have the funds to hire an SRO or there aren't SROs in, in their community, they can use a guardian. And so a guardian is a, a trained individual that currently works for the school district. So they don't have to spend $100,000 on an SRO. Uh, they just take an existing personnel and they send them through a sheriff-sponsored guardian program where they receive a hun- over 132 hours of firearms training shoot, don't shoot. They receive diversity training and they're really, really well trained. So, um, so uh, remind me again, Monica's question. So what is the, what is the viability of that? Yes. Let me scroll back up to the actual question. What are your thoughts? Well, basically, what are your thoughts on hiring veterans to help out at school? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so we have this guardian program that's working very, very well. The, um, the, the only concern that I have about, um, using veterans i'm certainly supportive of that but we just have to make sure that you know veterans that that have you know come back from you know these horrible wars you know, we want to make sure they don't have ptsd and we want to make sure that um they're they're in a good place and a good mindset to to be able to deal with the kids so that's the only concern that i would have but you know hopefully we could uh you know, work, work through that when, you know, they do all the, the psych evaluation and a mental health evaluation of the, of the guardians. But, um, we want to make sure that, that they have jobs coming back overseas. And, um, so that's, that's the only, only concern that I would have, but, you know, we need, we need, we need as many, uh, individuals to serve in those roles as possible. And, and I think they're really good for a lot of rural areas, you know, where there's not law enforcement or, you know, the response time for law enforcement is, is could take upwards of 20 minutes. Uh, the guardian is, is a perfect, uh, you know, role to fill there. You know, you can have a principal, assistant principal, a coach, a security monitor. In Florida's case, you can also have a teacher be a guardian. Thank you very much for that, Max. It's very informative. There's another question here that we'll give to you now before we branch off to the other panelists for their input uh, from Vermont. A, a question is, well, she said Canaan schools and that's in Vermont were closed down due to verbal threats last week of school and canceled due to severity. The official searched home and found no guns, but threats from individuals were very serious. So the question to you, Max, would be what can government officials do to prevent this from happening? And I'm sure at some point Chief Moffitt can also respond to that when we get to him. So what can government officials do to prevent this from happening? And are there funds available in small for small town areas to uh to, to basically create some help or response time. And how do we find that information? Yeah. So on schoolsafety.gov are all the best practices and resources. And so what, what state officials can do is uh, the best practices are every state should have an anonymous threat reporting system, a way all of these individuals that, that go to commit these horrible acts of violence do not snap overnight. They all exhibit concerning behavior over time. They all have red flags that they're they're exhibiting, and so it is the kids and it is the teachers that you know know who who is 
who is having, who is, uh, you know, thinking about possibly hurting themselves or others. And so uh, a lot of times it's the students that really are, are closest to these individuals know and, and we know that see something, say something works, but they have to have a way to really communicate that to, to the uh, law enforcement. And so that's where anonymous threat system comes into place. And then the second thing is, is setting up a threat assessment team, an effective, well-trained threat assessment team. Uh, after Parkland, we set up threat assessment teams in every school, uh, every K through 12 school in our state, but we also need to have threat assessment teams in law enforcement as well. So now, there's a lot that can be done. Um, obviously, it's going to be really difficult to get to to get to zero, uh, but but there is a lot that we can do, and and to make sure that we're doing everything we can to prevent the next act of targeted violence. We know that the majority of these can be prevented through effective threat assessments and um, you know, a lot of the other. Uh, best practices that are on schoolsafety.gov and also on on our website, you know, please check out safeschoolsforalex.org. Thank you very much, Max. And if you don't mind, I'm going to lob one more question to you. And Monica, hang tight. We will get back to your question. We definitely want to get to some of the other panelists as well for their input and insight. So one more question, Max, before we hit the panel, what are your thoughts about teachers having guns in the classroom? So I, the Parkland Commission voted 11 to 1 in favor of arming teachers. I was the one commissioner that voted against arming teachers. So I, I am not in favor of arming teachers, but that is the law in Florida. And um, yeah, so that's, that's the answer to my question. Thank you, Max. And please, everyone, hang on to your questions for Max. We will be coming right. We will be coming back then after we speak to other panelists because it is important to hear from other perspectives and to find out just what the roles are, for example, of school resource officers. And we're very fortunate to have two of them from the city of Manchester Police Department, where there are approximately 25 schools. And we have Officer Justin, Officer Caitlin. Let me start with Officer Justin. Um, Justin, if you come up on mic, my first question to you for everyone is what's your role? And Caitlin, you can respond to that right after. What is your role and what do you experience on a daily basis, you know, as an assigned school resource officer? Hi, everyone. So I'm assigned to a high school in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, I'm there Monday through Friday. I'm assigned to one specific school because um, I know in some other towns or cities, they have multiple schools. Um, day to day, um, you know, kids will come talk to us. You know, we have like a certain group of kids that always come and see us. Um, we can get assigned cases from that either happen in the school, outside of the school. Um, biggest thing for us is also just being present, um, being seen. So for us, it's um, a lot of balancing our workload, but also like being out in the school, um, you know, getting around to where we're noticed by um, staff and teachers because I think they feel comfortable seeing us. So that's kind of like a day-to-day -day task for us. Um, obviously making sure the school's safe. Um, our school is kind of interesting because it's more, um, it's a high school, but it's almost set up like a campus. So we have multiple buildings that we have to kind of keep our eye on on a daily basis. So Justin, some of the issues that you encounter that come to you and not refer to anyone else in the school system and Caitlin too. What are some of the actual problems that you uh, that are brought to your attention? Um, so, you know, just example this year, I mean, a lot of these threats, we have gotten the um, school threats. We see a lot of them on uh, 
Snapchat or we get um, spoof calls, um, you know, just coming saying, you know, with very vague statements saying we're coming to either shoot up the school and we have to, you know, take them as serious as we can, um, you know, go into these lockdowns, do these drills. Um, so that's important. Um, you know, then take the the investigation approach to figure out, you know, is this a, a real threat um, that is, you know, could, could be potentially carried out. Um, Thank you, Justin, for that. So in other words, you are monitoring multiple sources, including social media. Caitlin, is that part of your role? Which is, and you're assigned to one of the schools in Manchester too, correct? Yeah, Justin and I actually work at the same school, so we're partners. Um, yeah, we deal with a lot of different things. You know, cyberbullying and, and social media threats are huge, whether they be student against student or, you know, someone making threats against the school. Um, the role of a school resource officer is really very large. It's, you know, act, active shooter training and being prepared for that is obviously top of the list, but we deal with a lot of other things as well. Uh, missing juveniles, fights that occur at school. Um, we really, school resource officers have a lot on their plate. Now, you normally just work Monday through Friday in, in the school system. Do you do any extracurricular activities with the students at all? We have a, um, we have a MPAL, the Manchester Police Athletic League, so students can get involved there. Um, sometimes we, we, you know, when, when, when these kids get in trouble and do stuff, you know, we try to keep them out of the court system because we, we're not trying to like, you know, be the prison pipeline here. So we actually have uh, programs at MPAL um, called Diversion that we, we have the kids go and do and, you know, try to make changes that way. Um, just to kind of keep them on the right track. Um, we also work with um, youth services in the school, and we're getting a lot more programs for kids that are high risk who need, you know, who need those extra services. So that's um, that's also a big thing that we do um, with that. So you're branching out quite a lot, a lot of preventive measures. And there's one question before I go to Chief Moffitt, uh, Caitlin, if you'd like to answer this, and Justin, you can help her, because it's a pretty big question from, I'm going to say, I hope I don't mess the name up, Empolio, from Long Island, New York. What can be done to prevent school shootings? Caitlin? Oh, that's, you know, the billion-dollar question, right? right. Um, <clears throat> you know, as Max was saying, I think that school assessments are very important. Um, you know, if shooters can't get inside the building, that's a huge first step to preventing a, an active shooter. Um, and then, you know, you can go even further and get into gun laws and background checks. And of course, that's different state to state. Um, but I think that something that schools can really control um, would be that that threat assessment that Max was talking about. And, um, you know, if your school is a hard target, meaning it's a target that is not, you know, as easy to go out and commit a crime against, um, that's the biggest first step right there. Thank you, Caitlin. Justin, you want to ring in on that one before we go to Chief Moffitt? No, I mean, that's exactly how I put it. You know, you got to make exactly. yourself, you know. Well, thank you both. I appreciate that very much. And I'm, I know that everyone is learning a little bit more. And some people probably just don't know exactly what and how busy school resource officers can be. So which is a perfect segue right now. And we'll catch some of these questions we'll do the best we can for everyone here. Let's go to Chief Ian Moffitt, kind of the city of Miami, retired city of Miami or Dade County school system, which was, if I'm not mistaken, the largest schools police department in the country. Uh, Chief, welcome. And your perspectives 
as an administrator over such a large system and with such tremendous responsibilities. Yeah, good evening, Jeff, and thanks for having me on. Uh, Max, really glad to hear the great work that you're doing um, around the country, and Max has hit home on a lot of things that I really believe in. So number one, as an administrator, what kept me up at night is what did we miss? Um, did we have all the pieces of information? Did we miss something where somebody has created a threat to one of our schools or administrative buildings or a football game and is about to cause harm or death to faculty, staff, and students? So that kept me up at night. And, and it comes down to number, number two is funding. Um, you got to have funding real quick. If you don't know, less than 1% of a school district's budget goes towards safety in this country. Um, I mentioned that to Max when we first met him right after the Parkland situation. Um, Florida stepped up and um, did the right thing in providing some funding for numerous things like school safety officers, guardians, guards, um, uh, the Fortify Florida, et cetera. So, so, you know, we're doing better than one. We're probably at two. But across this nation, um, administrators and school police chiefs and chiefs of police are dealing with funding issues because there's things that they want to do, but they just don't have the funding because, number one, safety needs to be a priority. Look at your school districts, K through 12, or university's mission, vision, and core values and see where you see safety there. And if you see safety there, you know, you got to put the money where your mouth is. Um, and, and with that money comes the ability to have technology and human capital. Um, let's talk a little bit about human capital. Human capital is having SROs inside these schools and keeping them there and paying them well and providing them with the proper equipment. Um, you know, training. I'm a big proponent of training. Dr. Garcia knows that. Uh, when you sit in a chair as a police chief, um, you've got to have your people trained. You have to have policy and you have to be ready to go and do your job. Unlike what we saw in Uvalde and what we saw in Parkland, people did not do their jobs and people lost their lives. So you have to have continual training have the right people in, in, in the in the job doing doing what they need to do and also equip them. Um, you know, often we have to um, uh, barter or kind of rank with the rest of the school district or west of the, of the, of the, the city or municipality as far as types of equipment, you know, access to long guns, access to shields, access to proper equipment, buying bullets. I mean, these things are all budgetary issues that we need to make sure that our uniformed officers are given the right, the right type of tools. And then technology. I am a big believer in technology to help balance the human capital. So technology, like see something, say something apps like Fortify Florida or the one I'm very familiar with in Florida is called SaferWatch app that provides two-way piece of communication, sends pictures, videos, text messages, and we have a button on the panic on, on the cell phone that when you push it, it goes straight to 911. And that's a mandate in the state of Florida, funded by the state of Florida. So, you know, technology such as having interactive cameras that are monitored at a central site where you're in a command center or a real-time crime center where information is coming in, tips are coming in, anonymous tips are coming in, and you're acting on them. Um, you gotta have those things in play. And then, uh, obviously prevention. Uh, I'm a big believer in the threat assessment. I am threat assessment trained. I brought Dr. Dewey Cornell in into the district in 2017, way before Parkland. We trained all our officers, our command staff in threat assessment. I got pushback from that, but you know what? I believed in it. I'm, I'm a certified threat assessment uh, instructor and we use threat assessments the proper way. A law enforcement officer, an educator, a teacher, and somebody with mental health background and making sure those people are in play and they fall through every single threat and they document it, they do the proper thing and they try to predict 
people from who might create acts of violence. And then also mental health. Mental health is a big component. Crisis intervention, making sure that your officers and your faculty and staff are crisis intervention trained and all your employees, just like Florida, all your employees are trained in youth mental health first aid, recognizing the signs and symptoms of mental illness and what actions steps to take in order to provide a plan of action to prevent people from doing things and giving them the, the help and building resiliency. So as a manager, you're looking at all these things, an administrator, as far as putting it all together. And that's the kind of stuff that kept me up at night. Did I have enough? What did I miss? Um, fighting for the budget, fighting for it with the, with, and you can't make everybody happy. That's the one thing Dr. Garcia and I talk about as police chiefs. You cannot make everybody happy. You have to prioritize things in, in, in the police department. And prioritizing life safety is always the most important thing for me. Well, it sounds you had to be pretty adept at navigating some of the political impediments and some of the resistance, but we'll get, get to that in a second, Chief. There's a great question in the chat column here. Uh, do you look at cumulative risk factors when determining who might be a school shooter, or is that part of a checklist? Great question. So, so that's a great question. So part of, uh, part of the threat assessment team is looking wholly with those four different lenses the law enforcement officer, the educator, the, um, the the administrator, and the mental health professional. Each person looking at their industry and their their qualifications as far as predictivity of the threat of future violence. And obviously, um, the law enforcement piece is going to look at what's happening inside the school, what's happening outside the school, and what follow-up action needs to occur. So it is a cumulative approach with four minimum of four people on this disciplines. You may bring more people into threat assessment. And, um, you know, threats come in two forms. Threats come internally and externally. This is my master's research paper I did uh, many, many years ago, University of Cincinnati, talking about threats. Uh, the outside threats, like what you saw in Uvalde, is an example of being able to lock down that facility and treat it like an embassy. The internal threats, like what we saw you know, in other school shootings up in uh, Michigan and, and other places internally from internal, uh, those are probably the most um, uh, unpredictable ones or the ones that are more threatening because these are people that we know. we got to be able to stop the um, uh, weapons and firearms from coming in, but also if they do make it in, they can do destructive damage. So being able to pre prevent and intervene. So that's what the threat assessment team is trying to do when they work together cumulatively. Thank you very much. And I think that was a tremendous answer. And I think the person who did post that is probably very satisfied with that. One more question before we segue over to the, over to Seth Matthews and talk about counseling, mental health, and that time in the decision-making processes, all of that, those types of behaviors. Last question for you, Chief, right now is you did navigate some of those uh, political impediments to, uh, that may have, you know, tried to derail some of your excellent strategies. How did you how did you convince them and what was your strategy and plan? Well, number one is um, you've got to be able to deal directly with your manager, the superintendent, whoever you, you, you report to. But then you also have to understand that you've got um, elected board members. So often I met individually because in Florida, you know, if you bring more than one board member together, they're elected officials, you're open in the sunshine. So you have to meet with them individually, hear what their issues are tell them what your issues are and get their buy-in from that standpoint and making sure that safety is number one um, and, and pushing your agenda from that standpoint. And often it comes down to the, the, the battle of the money. 
And that's where the internal piece happens at the cabinet. And Dr. Garcia knows this being a chief out in Clark County to also the time that you, you're, you're competing for funds. So you don't want to take funds away from the educational department at the same time you're trying to, um, make your case for funds. So, um, where the political entity meets is like what happened in Florida. They funded the mandates that we told were best practices. Everything that Max mentioned and talked about, Florida is doing because of the information made it to MSD Commission and they made it into law and they funded it. So it's a it's been a battle. And you know, even after long retired, I'm still in the school safety industry and I can tell you that it's a battle and I'm glad to see that we've got the funding for the things that were fought. So you got to take on the, the politics, you know, individually and then get advocates like Max and other people involved to, to push the agenda to the same time. Good to know, Chief. Thank you very much for detailing that. I really do appreciate that. I'm sure everyone here does as well. We, have, we do have a couple of questions here um, from Jennifer and Monica, and, and we're going to circle back to your questions. We have another panel. So in the interest of time, I'd like to get to Seth Matthews, whose background in crisis intervention and counseling, et cetera, is uh, without peer. Seth, your opinion, your perspective on school violence. Thank you, Jeff. I actually think that it's an excellent segue. Uh, Chief Moffat mentioned mental health first aid, uh, and that actually ties very specifically into the questions that we have from Jennifer and from Monica in the chat. Um, and I'll start with Jennifer's as I think it, it's, it's a good place to, to segue from Chief Moffitt's comments. Uh, morale in school, um, what, I'll, I'll, I, what I think will get at your question, if I can reframe it slightly, is to talk about the normalization of school shootings. I read a really heartbreaking tweet the days after Uvalde from a disabled teacher uh, who uses a wheelchair. And she spoke to her classroom and in their safety refresher mentioned to them that I won't be able to escape and I won't be able to protect you because of my disability. So I want to make sure that you know that if someone comes in that you run and the classroom paused and they spoke to the teacher and they said, well, miss, we've already decided that if anything happens, we're carrying you out. And that broke my heart and it should break all of our hearts. And when I speak, when, when you talk about morale, uh, Jennifer, what I really hear uh, emerging these days is uh, not apathy, but an acceptance that this is a norm. And that becomes a very concerning mental health state for our students, our educators, and for the rest of us uh, in, as a society. Now, we do have things that we can do to prevent and intervene, both with uh, prevention of shootings and reduction of risk of people that are likely to become destabilized and to become violent within the mental health community. But we also have the ability to normalize and destigmatize uh, seeking treatment, which will cast a much wider net and provide options and resources to denormalize that uh, fear and to reduce the challenges that we see overall within our schools. And mental health first aid is a really remarkable good place to start because that tool allows us to uh, teach each other what the signs and symptoms of mental illness are and to normalize referring our colleagues, our students, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our friends on the school grounds for support when they need them. 
And that I think in, in regards to prevention is the greatest thing that is that we can do uh, as a community for mental health. Now, the same challenges in regards to competing for resources, uh, we see those as well. I, one of our one of my fellow panelists mentioned earlier, uh, you know, $100,000 for a school resource officer. Uh, the average uh, licensed mental health clinician salary in uh, in New Hampshire anyways, it's between fifty and $80,000 a year. So we do have the ability to provide more resources within schools with licensed trained mental health professionals. We just haven't made the dedication to find the budget to do so. Uh, I think if we are able to do so uh, locally, federally, then we will be in a position to see a reduction of violence within the schools uh, and to support the wonderful work done by our school resource officer colleagues. Thank you, Seth. And there is, if you don't mind, everyone who's on the chat column here, if I skip down to a career-focused question, because uh, as you know, thematic to these events here, we like to inform students about, you know, various roles and how to get to those roles to become either a chief or an officer, et cetera, and or a crisis intervention specialist. Um, there's a question here, what are these leadership roles called? And this person is interested in crisis intervention and emergency management within the school system. Any suggestions on what that student uh, should look for? Primarily these days, the uh, crisis response is managed at the administrative level with support from school guidance counselors. I see a future and I see a near future in which uh, we have more mobile crisis professionals that are licensed mental health clinicians. That's a role that I serve. Uh, I'm not currently licensed, but it's a role that I support our local community with as well. Um, and the mobile crisis model is actually something we did a presentation on with this team uh, what, two, maybe three years ago at this stage. Uh, but this is probably where you're going to see the those roles in regards to mental health and responsiveness uh, to disasters, both natural and man-made. Uh, and that already is the emerging model that we're seeing and that is partnering more effectively uh, each year with law enforcement, both on daily calls and on these more extreme situations. Uh, Mental health professional licensure prepares you for that. So a bachelor's track towards uh, human services, psychology, et cetera, um, and then a master's work, uh, master's work in social work uh, towards licensure or mental health counseling towards licensure. Uh, we also have uh, lots of options in the emergency management piece on the criminal justice side as well. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. There is a great question from Monica. She's had some very good questions tonight. I'm going to skip to that one, and I'm going to put it back to the panel and for a show of hands, who would like to answer this one? How would a forensic psychologist play a part in something such as a mass shooting as we've seen? Does anyone have any ideas or information they'd like to offer for the students? Question about forensic psychology. Uh, Jeff, I'll go ahead and jump in. So I think a forensic psychologist will be helpful, number one, in being part of the threat assessment team, um, being able to assist um, in investigations in Florida, we've got uh, an enhanced penalty called written threats to do bodily harm. Basically, if you're posting, writing, or sending things over the internet or on paper, um, that is a second-degree felony. It was a misdemeanor uh, prior to Parkland. So I think a forensic psychologist will be able to assist with the ongoing investigation piece and also the threat assessment team to determine the likeness of, of violence and also what type of character we're dealing with and, and going a deeper dive and helping um, law enforcement with um, with investigative matters. Thank you very much for that answer. And I'm, I think, Monica, that probably answers it quite well for you. Um, one more for Seth. I think this is best directed towards you. From Monica, what are your thoughts on the mother who broke into the school in Uvalde to get her children? Is that a normal reaction? And how is it handled by law enforcement? And the second part is, this is excellent. And this, 
um, this, this goes out to anyone too as well. Is there a certain way to discuss with your children pertaining to safety on these, uh, these devastating situations? I'll speak to the mother's reaction, and I see Chief Moppet uh, chiming in as well, and I'll step out of the way for him. Um, in regards to the mother's reaction, yes, psychologically, that is the very you know primary and primal uh, cause that we have as parents. And I, uh, I don't have the expertise professionally to speak to the response of of the police in Nivalde, although I'm certain that we're all forming our own opinions as more information comes to light. Uh, but I will say that that is indicative both in the moment and long term of the impact that similar tragedies have on communities. And we can't count that cost. We can't count that cost. So when we hear Chief Moffitt, uh, and when I mention uh, talking about funding for preventive services, for protective services, uh, when we often hear, what we often hear back from legislators is, well, it's just too expensive. And the answer is, uh, to that response, can only be, it's far more expensive not to act. It's far more expensive not to, to, to resource and not uh, to prevent and protect uh, than it is to uh, allow this level of trauma to occur, not only on individuals in our school systems, but on the communities as a whole. Thank you, Seth. And there's from Rachel Gould. And Chief, you'd like to chime in on that most recent question. And this one as well, before we end up going back to Max, our keynote speaker for the last few remaining 15 minutes of our event, our program here for Q&A. Uh, Chief, the other question for you would be, what are the benefits of increasing trauma-informed care in schools and that's from Rachel Gould. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start the first part. Number one, it's natural for a parent, a grandparent, anybody to rush to that school to try to get their kid. I mean, that happened to my son, my daughter, my grandsons. I, I, I would do that in a heartbeat. I'm sure any parent would do it. But it also goes to show you the uh, the failures, and I'll say it, the failures of the, of the police on scene not to secure that perimeter, not to secure that school. I mean, this parent was able to go into one part of the school get her child, come back out and try to get to the other part of the school. I mean, and heard gunshots being fired. So it tells me that uh, the training and preparation was not to standard um, and they weren't prepared to deal with that type of situation. When it comes to trauma-informed care, uh, I'm a full believer in this. I think this is something that we need to have. We need to have it down all the way down to the ground level um, at, the, at the school site and with part of those tra mobile tra um, teams that uh, the other panelists talked about. I think that uh, those are invaluable pieces of resources to have, but you've got to have the funding in order to have these people on site. So I'm, I'm fully supportive of all that. Well, thank you, Chief. And as we're getting closer to the end of our event here, let's go back to Max. Max, you have anything you'd like to add and or share while some questions are being monitored in the chat that we can give to you as well. And thank you again for being our keynote. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. You know, we're talking about a lot of different, you know, there's no one panacea as, as everyone understands to these horrible tragedies. There's no one solution. It's really school safety has to be a holistic approach to uh, not only the prevention side, but affecting the culture and climate of a school. You know, if you have a negative culture and climate, you've got kids that are um, might not come forward uh, when they see a classmate that is thinking about hurting themselves or others. And they might uh, they might have already done so in the past. They know that school administration is not going to do anything. Teachers know the same thing that they've they've voiced concerns before and they don't do anything. So culture and climate is is a big piece to this. You want to make sure that 
And I, that goes to um, the whole school environment, uh, understanding that this is a priority at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. It was not. And uh, there was a lot of complacency when we interviewed the principal of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and we asked him if there was a threat to shoot up your school, did you expect to know about it? His answer was no. He was uninterested and uninvolved in the threat assessment process. Um, so, so obviously culture and climate is important. The prevention side, we touched on that a little bit. And there is no profile for an active shooter. There are commonalities that, that take place. There are, you know, uh, an individual that is, um, you know, obsessed with, with mass shootings, the, you know, violence, uh, you know, hurting, hurting and mutilating animals like the Parkland murderer was, um, arson. There are signs, um, that, that these individuals, um, exhibit that if you look, there are commonalities, but there is no profile for, for a mass, a mass attacker. And then, um, you know, obviously you can do everything, all this stuff, and it, it's, you're never going to get to perfect. You're never going to get, you know, a, a, a completely serene environment because it is like, like a city or like an open campus. Like a lot of these communities are like, like the SROs we're talking about. So, um, and there are things that you can do that are just low cost, no cost. And I talked about, um, uh, you know, just, just covering the windows, um, on the second floor of Parkland shooting so that the murderer could not see inside the classroom. Just, just in Florida, we instruct all our teachers to teach with a locked door. And we know that in in Uvalde, the the murderer walked right in. Uh, You know, if if that door had just been locked, the teacher, um, you know, went outside to get something out of her car, came back in, the door didn't lock, you know? So, it's it's doing all of these things, but also making sure that there are processes in place and policies and procedures that are that are followed uh, to make sure that uh, that you are doing everything that you can to make sure that this this environment is is as safe and secure. And um, and then obviously, you know, uh, you know, I want to thank the, the SROs for being on today and, and for for doing what they do and putting their life on the line every day, because it is a, a very dangerous job and it is. It is a thankless job. So an SRO is a key piece to to making your school safe. They are role models and they are our first line of defense because when when the horrible happens, the most important thing is to stop the killing and then stop the dying. And and that's why training is so important. Um, you know, Chief Moffat knows and Dr. Garcia know that in Parkland we had nine officers our sheriff's office deputies that waited outside and they didn't go in the building for 11 minutes. They didn't go to the third floor for over 40 minutes to, to treat the, the dying and, and the bleeding on the third floor. And, and what we found was that the Broward sheriff's office only conducted active shooter training every three years. Conversely, we watched the Coral Springs police department uh, respond to the shooting and they went right in. They trained every year. So training is critically important. And, and I think that as the investigation in Uvalde unfolds, we will see that that was, um, you know, completely lacking as well. Thank you, Max. This is Dr. Garcia. Again, we have a call in our top engagement listener. Monica has called in. So Monica's on live. Go ahead, Monica. 
not really quite sure how to ask this question the correct way, but um, how can we deter children, not just as parents, but adults, teachers, faculty, police, everyone, um, from making, you know, light of situations like this, um, you know, with with the music and the media and things like that. Um, I've noticed with my, my children who are young, um, you know, they'll say certain things coming home from schools, you know, like uh, songs that maybe they don't realize um, puts like this light on these very, very traumatic situations. was a little light there, a little weak, Monica, but I'm not sure if our guests uh, from Max picked that up. Does anyone, was anyone able to pick up her, her excellent question? I was, and I'll, I'll try to broadcast it a little bit and then um, and, and see if I can take a stab at the answer. And and Monica, I think what you're getting at the root of is is some of the cultural uh, questions that that you're that you're discussing in uh, in the chat and some of what we talked about with normalization earlier. So Monica's question in general is how are we able to uh, impose upon our kiddos the importance of understanding the traumatic nature of these events and to keep them from sort of normalizing and making light of them. Um, and what I'll tell you, Monica, is that, uh, frankly, humor and desensitization is a relatively natural response to traumatic events, especially ones that we don't have a context for how to manage. Um, folks in the crisis management industry actually have a terrible reputation uh, for what we call graveyard and gallows humor because uh, there's an old saying that says sometimes uh, it's better to laugh than to cry. And unfortunately, some of what you're talking about is uh, the signs of that traumatization, that cultural traumatization extending to our kiddos. So I would suggest that perhaps the answer is not how do we stop them, uh, but rather how we highlight and recognize what we can do in order, as we mentioned, with things like mental health first aid, to recognize those signs uh, and recognize that those uh, youth that may be more impacted than others, that may uh, be exhibiting more of those signs than others, uh, we do want to refer and make sure that they do get professional support uh, before that turns into a longer-term challenge. Does that answer it for you, Monica? Yes, it does. I think if I could just, if I could just add something else to that. Please. Um, you know, the whole cultural aspect and these music videos and the songs um, that are a lot about violence and guns. We deal with that a lot. Jesse and I work in inner city high school. Um, we have, you know, 14-year-olds telling us that they don't want to snitch on so-and-so because they don't want to get in trouble. So I think one thing that we really try and do is just stress the seriousness of the situation. Um, how, you know, music videos and songs, it's not the real world. And, and just have conversations with them about it. I think having conversations is so important to, you know, for adults to have with children um, just to help them understand. Excellent, Caitlin. That's an excellent perspective on that. There just seems to be an endless uh, list of variables that are affecting student behavior, including age. And now you're talking about music and all those types of influences. We definitely have our hands full. I think there may be one or two more questions in the chat here. Some, um, let me get to this one. Before we start going, uh, I'll circle back and pass the baton back to Garcia, Dr. Garcia after this one. From Michaela. 
do you think there would be a benefit in training teachers on crisis intervention strategies, or should that be something left to first responders and or mental health professionals? And I will leave that to the panel. This is uh, Ian Moffat, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that, uh, that question. I think anybody and anybody that can be trained in crisis intervention will help um, recognize the signs and symptoms, be able to de-escalate situations uh, and work in concert with uh, with everybody. So it's not just an SRO problem, it's not just a counselor's problem, uh, it's, it's a teacher problem also. So big believer in that, the problem comes down to usually there's 180 school days in a school year, there's teacher planning days, it's just squeezing another piece of training and accountability on it. So uh, definitely we can um, work towards it. So I'm a big believer in that aspect also. And I, I agree with Chief Moffitt, you know, we're, we're, you know, these teachers, they're with these kids a tremendous lot, but we, we know that from the Secret Service report that a lot of, you know, it's these home life factors that are affecting these kids and what happens after school in their house, um, they bring all of that to school. And so we need our teachers to be trained and how to uh, identify the signs of a child in crisis. You know, the whole point is to um, prevent that, to, to, uh, to identify and to get those kids the help that they need um, uh, before they, they uh, even consider an act of, an act of violence. And so uh, this, this crisis intervention team is, is, a big, is a big part of this new gun safety legislation. There's going to be a lot of money that is going to come into schools and, and law enforcement for crisis intervention teams. And um, that is before uh, threat assessment is needed. So if we can uh, get these, these kids out of crisis, then we will not need even a threat assessment team because they won't be making threats. And obviously, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, law enforcement won't be involved. We will be, will be if we can do it well and train our teachers um, in not only crisis intervention, but, uh, you know, how to identify kids that are, you know, depressed and thinking about hurting themselves, committing suicide, kids that are being bullied. All this needs to be, uh, you know, they, all, they, all, they need to be trained in all of that because they're with them the most and, and they can have the, the largest impact on their lives and, and not only making our schools safe, but making our country safer because all these individuals that are committing these acts of violence, they were in our schools at one point in time. So um, I think that, that that's going to be, that's a big piece of the new gun safety legislation. And, and I think it'll make a big impact. Max, I can't thank you enough. And on behalf of the Department of Criminal Justice and Southern Hampshire University Global, Thank you to all the panelists. I'm going to circle right back, pass the baton back to to Dr. Garcia for closing comments and wrap up. Thank you very much, Dr. Zarnick. The panel members, thank you very much. Officers Wheeler and Murphy from the New Hampshire Police Department, SROs. Um, obviously, Chief Moffitt from Miami-Dade School Police Department, Seth Matthews from SNHU Human Services, and our special guest today, Parkland parent, Max Schachter, CEO and founder of Safe Schools for Alex. Thank you so much, everyone, for attending tonight. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.